This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. Some of the really cool things that we started to understand about the coronavirus spike protein really helped to fuel this rapid vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 vaccine. So the protein that you're getting when you get your second dose tomorrow by way of the messenger mRNA is a so-called pre-fusion spike protein. So it's basically the protein that gives you the best immunity um, that you can have. That's Dr. Kismikia Corbett, the scientific lead of the coronavirus vaccine program at the NIH. The work of her team is one of the reasons the Moderna vaccine was developed in months instead of years. This is especially great to be talking with you today because the day after tomorrow, I get my second shot of Moderna. And I have you to thank for that. And I'm thanking you right now, face to face. Well, um, you know, you have a lot of people to thank for that. I know, I know. But I got you. I feel like you're the main one I want to thank. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I'm, I can never get tired of hearing that people are getting their vaccinations. Um, it's, it's still very surreal to hear that. And I'm, I'm always very happy because it just means there's another life saved. So now what about you? You just got, you just got a Moderna shot yourself, right? Well, I had my second shot on January 25th. And what was that like for you? Were thoughts rushing through your head as they plunged in the needle? The first shots I, I definitely had, um, you know, I was holding back tears. It was again, just a surreal moment and a very full circle moment. For me, I, you know, I have been so full of just emotion and joy this entire time mm. as people have been getting vaccinated. It just must be a feeling that out of millions of feelings of success, it would be hard to match what you must be going through. You, what, what surprises me, as I understand it, one of the reasons we were able to get a vaccine so soon is that you and your team we're working on coronaviruses, looking for a way to get a vaccine for them in general for, for years before this, right? Yes. Me and the team and uh, my principal investigator, Dr. Barney Graham, and our collaborators had been working on coronaviruses for some time. Um, I got to the NIH about six years ago in 2014. And really since then, we've been working on coronaviruses and they actually were working on coronavirus vaccines in the context of MERS mm -hmm. prior to me getting there. And so some of the really cool things that we started to understand about the coronavirus spike protein really helped to fuel this rapid vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 vaccine. So MERS and sars are both coronaviruses, and they both have those spikes that we've all come to know and love. 
Yes, they are both coronaviruses, and they both have those spike proteins on the surface of them. Um, and you know, those spike proteins are the reason why the viruses are able to attach to human cells and get inside of cells, and you know, do all their nastiness and replicate and cause COVID disease. And so we really just sought out to understand how to best make that um, interaction be blocked. And by, by doing so, we made the spike protein in a, in a very good shape to be presented to the immune response. And so your body sees it and now it won't ever, it'll just attack it the next time it sees it um, on the surface of a virus. So let me see if I got that progress of steps. The coronavirus has this spike on it that when it comes in contact with a receptor on the cell, attaches to that receptor, right? And then, yes. it, and then it uses that to get into, push into the cell, the human cell, and, and uses the cell's machinery to reproduce itself, right? Yes. So your effort is not to attack the whole coronavirus, but just to get that spike, which is the key that unlocks the door to our cells. Is that right? Right. It's it's just like a lock and key. And the only thing that you have to do is prevent that key from getting into the lock. So how do you develop a vaccine that knows that knows what the key is? How do you how does it find the key? Yeah. So it's really cool because these proteins are the mechanism by which they work is called fusion. So that basically means that they allow for the virus to fuse with the cell. So they do that by changing shape and unfolding and all these other very intricate details. But the so-called pre-fusion shape, so the shape of the protein before it starts that fusion process, is the shape that you want the body to learn. And so if you just dump in spike protein into the body, it's going to automatically just flip because that's what it is trained to do. And so now you're giving the body something that's not in its most optimal form or its optimal shape. And so we learned a way to lock that spike protein in its prefusion shape. And so the protein that you're getting when you get your second dose tomorrow um, by way of, of the messenger mRNA is a so-called prefusion spike protein. So it's basically the protein that gives you the best immunity um, that you can have. And I think there's some confusion on the part of some of the public who are worried about the new technique of messenger RNA being used to deliver uh, this into our body. You're not delivering any active uh, coronavirus into our body. It's just something that produces the spike. Right. We're only delivering the spike protein. So all of the other stuff that comes with the virus is not delivered at all. That spike protein that's going into your body cannot replicate. It can't make you sick. You know, I think that there's confusion there because pe people are tr used to the traditional ways of developing vaccines where you do sometimes give people just a dead virus or an inactivated virus. But in this case, we really use some cool technology to avoid having to give people whole virus. I've been interested in hearing things you've said 
about outreach mm-hmm. and what Freeman Hrabowski said about you, that you were a scientist who really knows how to connect with an audience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he said there should be more scientists who can connect with an audience. Well, you know, Dr. Hrabowski has known me since I was 17 years old and, you know, just fairly um, to anyone who's listening to this, he is biased. <laughs> <laughs> he he heads where you went heads the school where you went to undergraduate school. Yes, right? yes, he's the president of the University of Maryland Baltimore County. And I understand you started speaking publicly at the age of 20 going out giving talks. What did you talk about and why did you do it? Well, I actually technically started speaking publicly before that, but it, it, to the general public, I made it a a mission of mine. Um, And, you know, I spoke to churches, I spoke to Girl Scouts, I spoke to community health organizations, or really anybody who would listen, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) And what would you talk about? I would talk about science. I, I would talk about the science, the details behind the thing that they needed to know. If it were Girl Scouts, I would present what is the science behind puberty and, you know, sex and STDs. Um, If it's a church, especially, you know, around the time that uh, HIV was a a huge problem, there are so many stigmas that were attached to HIV that were also attached to what, fairly speaking, a lot of, a lot of people who go to church would consider to be sin. Like, sex and, you know, homosexuality and those kinds of stigmas that were attached to HIV. And so talking to church people about what is the truth to kind of debunk those stigmas allowed for, um, you know, acceptance of HIV positive people in, into, into church, into their faith communities. And so I, I did that because a lot of times the connection between what is the science behind something and what people understand of that thing is lost. It's actually, as I, especially in this moment, as I've been doing this a lot more frequently, I'm finding that it's actually unfair of us to ask that of people. I think it's very unfair of us to ask of people to go get a vaccine without making it our onus to teach them about that. And so I just have made it my own, as I guess. And with the COVID vaccine, it sounds like you have an an extra job to perform in addition to the one you just described, because people of color are particularly resistant or hesitant about the vaccine. Yeah, you know, um, I'm finding that vaccine hesitancy is how it's it's termed, Hmm. comes in two different directions. There's just a set of people who are either not informed or misinformed. And then there is also a group of people who are just scared because they have either personally or, you know, heard of someone who has been been mistreated by what is modern medicine or even not even so modern medicine, but for centuries, right? Our ancestors have been mistreated. And so easing that fear is on one hand about the information, but it is also on the other hand, just about the empathy. 
And so I just try to listen to people as much as I can. I, I find, you know, people always, I've been getting a lot of praise for this, which I, to be frank, I actually find fairly odd because it's almost like, you know, praising a mother for feeding her child. Like I brought this thing and I, I brought this thing into the world. The least I can do is, is to take and take extra care. Right. I think I come from another camp. I'm not surprised that you're doing it. I'm, but I am overjoyed that you're doing it. Yeah. You know, it, it was very disheartening and, and almost a, um, a spiritual burden for me to, to have developed the vaccine and to be so proud of that moment for mankind. And then to have the data come out around vaccine hesitancy and then almost, you know, admittedly embarrassing that I'd been in the back of a laboratory at a federal institution doing work towards this end for the last six years. And people that I care about the most just had no idea that that work even existed. And I, you know, we were publishing, Mm. you know, great papers and stuff, but really just sat with me in a way that I, I felt that now was a time to really express the science to people and and get it to people in a very digestible way. Yeah. It's, it sounds like um, an instance of an example of how we're separated from one another in an unhealthy way. Yeah. And we're not listening to each other or reaching out to each other, but you must have an advantage. Do you have an advantage being an African-American yourself? Do you get, I think I do have an advantage for African-American people, but I, I keep continue to say this, that there are, well, certainly there are far many other broadly hesitant populations and demographics, right? Mm-hmm. Even my own uncle, who is a farmer in, in rural North Carolina, took to the vaccine more when I was telling him that my boss, Dr. Graham, was raised on a farm. And when I told him that mm. the father of modern vaccinology, Maurice Hillman, was also raised on a farm, and it like clicked to him that it must be something that you can trust if it came from a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's understandable. We, we, we latch on to somebody with our experience. You do. It is all about your experiences. And so I, I probably naturally have a knack for talking to, you know, people in black churches because I, Mm. I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm spiritual in practice, but also in purpose. And so I think that, you know, there's a niche in this regard for every single person, as I say, in the kind of church, you know, like reach out to your neighbor. That's how we say it in church. It's the same thing. It's, Everybody kind of has, if you are a scientist, I think that you do have a space in this outreach agenda. What do you say to fellow African-Americans when, when they come in saying to you or ready to say to you, they gave us syphilis or let us, let us die from syphilis in an experiment? Mm-hmm. How can we trust them? You know, well, I, I explained uh, in your references, the Tuskegee experiment. Well, the first actually thing that came out of your mouth is one that is actually most known or a piece of information that's most known about the Tuskegee experiment, which is just not true. And that a lot of African-Americans think that 
the government gave those men syphilis, not that it's any better, but actually the government just allowed for those men's syphilis to progress while they studied their body's response to syphilis. But the men already had syphilis and they allow for them to go untreated and unbeknownst to them. A deplorable test, for especially for physicians to do. It's unbelievable. Absolutely horrific and just ugh, gross. But I explained that the times are have changed. And it's actually the juxtaposition of explaining that is often difficult because the times have changed, but then also I'm explaining this to Black people when George Floyd just got murdered last year in such a horrific way. Yeah. yeah. So it's very difficult to kind of break ground in that respect around the narrative of the times changing because have they actually? And yes, they have from a medical institution standpoint. But when you wrap social justice around that, it's sometimes difficult to explain. And so then the next thing that I do is I'm very specific about what are the differences here. The one very specific difference is that at no point did we say we are only going to test this vaccine on Black people. Actually, in the beginning, it was actually quite the opposite. In the phase one clinical trial was only 4% African-American and almost enrolled on a first-come, first-served basis. Another difference is that there are so many people in this process, in the vaccine development process, whether it be from where I sit in the very early design and development, all the way through to the point of FDA approval, where, you know, people like James Hildreth, who is the CEO of Meharry Medical College, advises the FDA on whether these vaccines are approved or not. And he's a black man and he's very specific voting towards how he feels the vaccine benefits everyone, but specifically whether it's safe or effective in in minority populations. And so, you know, that's one of the differences between what is now and what is happening with this vaccine development and what happened in the uh, Tuskegee experiment is that there are people at the table, so to speak, with power. And I actually add the power piece because there was a woman or nurse in the Tuskegee experiment who the government used as a liaison to the community to break down the barrier and to build trust. And I've been analogized to that by people who still don't trust the process. And the difference is that this was before there were even Blacks in Congress. This is before... Black people had any power to say no in a a way that would not guarantee that they wouldn't be harmed for doing that. And so what her options were, were limited. And so that's not the case here. I could feel like my people were being mistreated and very frankly, leave my job tomorrow and would. But aside from Tuskegee, there are countless examples and they're not just historical And I think that that's another thing that um, broadly we all kind of miss in this, in the context is that people are treated poorly every single day. And my own grandmother, actually, the vaccine got to the local community health department in her, in her neighborhood or in her County. 
And I called and I said, Grandma, you know, the, the vaccine is down at the health department and your age group is enrolling and you should go down there very quickly and get your vaccine. And she said, now, Kizzy, why would I do that? They've never brought anything good to that health department. And that really rung to me because this is my grandmother in rural North Carolina who was right. There's never been anything good to come out of that health department. While it does sit there to serve the community, it hasn't largely functioned in that capacity for the greater good. And to say that you expect people who have been turned away from that health department or not provided adequate services at that health department or otherwise at that health department to now come and get a vaccine that they already don't trust really kind of put all of it into context for me, not just around the historical context, but in the current modern context. Now, how did it turn out? Did you Were you able to sway her? Did she get a shot? My grandmother has definitely now had her two doses of okay, the vaccine. Good. good. And um, I don't feel like anyone in the world is more important to protect. So I'm very happy about that. When we come back from our break, Kizmikia Korba tells me about how her faith enables her to connect with the Black community and encourage them to get their shots. And we talk about the increasing risk of new and potentially more dangerous variants of the virus. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Kizmikia Corbett. This conversation is making me even more aware of the tragic rift among us. 47% of African-Americans I read were reluctant to take the shot. I hope it's getting better. But there are a population who I understand need to be vaccinated e- even more than their, their white colleagues because they have health issues in part brought about by segregation um, mm-hmm. that still exists. Yeah, you know, um, those numbers are getting better. So I I see it with webinars even that I'm on. If I go into the webinar and do a poll, about 30% of people will say they would get the vaccine. And when I leave, just out of having conversation, about, you know, 60 to 70 or 80% say that they would. And so flipping that is, again, really just about the information. And Yeah, I mean, there are health disparities that present in minority communities 
and, you know, poor communities and whatever else that render them more likely to succumb from COVID-19, whether it be just the quality of care or diabetes and um, heart disease or other chronic illnesses. And so you're right. If you were to suggest that you want to protect the most vulnerable people first, then you might suggest that it would be behoove us to really focus in on populations that have those types of comorbidities. And I think that a lot of states are actually doing it in that kind of stratified way. It it occurs to me, I don't know if this is correct, but it occurs to me that this is an example because we're talking about a pandemic. This is a case where bias and prejudice comes back to bite you right where you don't want it to bite you. Because if, if you've made them more vulnerable, allowed them to become sicker, their virus has more of a chance to mutate and get to you, has more of a chance to get to you because there are more people sick around you. Is, is that, am I incorrect about the science? I think that you are, you know, very close to correct about the science. I, you know, the mutations and all of that is a little bit more complicated than that. But it is certainly true that it is one of those instances where a virus shines a light on what are the holes in societal stru- society structure. Whether that be overpopulation and overcrowdedness in, in urban areas, um, health disparities, however which way you look at health disparities, um, just travel, the way that we travel, actually. I I think, you know, this virus was very quick to get all over the globe because of the way, the way of which we travel and how we take travel for granted. Um, But nevertheless, I think from my perspective that the virus is teaching all of us how to human a little bit better. (laughs) <laughs> Good way to put You must be making some progress because the town you grew up in put aside a whole day in your honor, right? <laughs> they did. And they got rid of their vaccine very quickly after that day. So I don't know if it was my honor or if it was to trick people into taking the vaccine. <laughs> but I am very much proud of uh, where I'm from. Um, I think that you you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you're from. And I'm I'm very happy to be a North Carolinian from my little small town in Hillsboro. Um, and I'm increasingly um, happy with the way that their vaccine rollout is happening. That's great. There was one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and that was variants and uh, the ability of our current vaccines to challenge the variants. And, and it really is related a little bit to what I was trying to say before. I, I, the assumption I made was that people who are vulnerable to COVID because of prior conditions, and if that cohort gets larger and larger, aren't there more bodies in which absolutely the virus can turn into a, a, a mutation? Absolutely. And that is exactly the reason why you want to stop the virus in its track and sooner than later. Because the more dead ends you can create, the less places the virus has to go to transmit and and spread. And viruses can only mutate if we give them the vehicle to do so. And those that vehicle is our cells in our body. And so, you know, having 
bubbles of, of populations or communities that are more vulnerable than other people or more hesitant to take a vaccine than other people creates a problem because now you have this micro environment of rampant high viral transmission that essentially sustains, you know, uh, sustains viral transmission around. And so it is, it's really funny because I, I have been actually kind of alluding to this around coronaviruses because coronaviruses went largely under the radar and understudied for a long time. I remember when Zika was circulating and Zika funding was kind of like question mark of how much it would be and blah, 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 blah. And then it was found out that Zika could shrink your testes. If you were infected with Zika, it could shrink your testes. And then all of a sudden funding shot up. And the joke was that it's because it now affected the white man. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I said, if there's ever going to be highlights on coronavirus funding, it probably is going to have to affect the white man. And here we are. Um, If I think if it were just running rampant in minority communities, then we probably would have a less dire situation than we do now. Um, And this virus not really having eyes or ears or seeing everybody as a vehicle for transmission really opens our eyes around what is nature's way of saying that we are all equal. Um, and that in order to really overcome challenges that we all have to work together to do that. That's great. That's a good place to end our conversation. Before we, before we get off the show, though, we always like to ask seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Okay. And they're <laughs> tuned to science and they're sort of about, about you, things, we, things that we try to find out that didn't come out during the talk. For instance... Can you remember the first thing you were curious about in your life? I don't remember, but I do know my parents told me that I basically presented a dissertation to them around why Santa Claus wasn't real. Like I wrote, <laughs> I wrote like a whole thing and an argument around it. And my mom said at that point, she thought I would be a, a, like a defense attorney because I just sat there and I argued <laughs> with them with all the facts. <laughs> How old were you? Like six. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Okay, second question. Newton said, if I can see farther, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. What giants do you feel you're standing on the shoulders of? So many. I've had just a continuous lineup of great mentors, but Dr. Barney Graham very much takes the cake as being the most humble and giving and smart and all things of a giant that you can be when it comes to mentoring someone. Um, And not just me, I think a lot of people feel this way. So Dr. Barty Graham, and he's also tall. So (laughs) (laughs) really tall. Well, there's there's a whole other issue, I (laughs) <laughs> to work, think about that. What, next question. What part of your research do you enjoy the most? When you, when you get the just numbers in your face and you get to crunch them and see what they're telling you, that's my favorite part. Uh, okay. As a scientist, 
What was the best moment you've ever had? I think Pfizer's phase three clinical result, uh, efficacy results coming out. When, what, what reaction did you have? I cried. It was, it was such a relief. It, it was very much because we were so focused and every single day we were working on this thing. And so it was very hard to see the worldview of it. And until that moment, you had no idea whether it was even really going to work and to what extent. And then to hear 95%, it was like... You would have been happy with much lower, I would have been. Right? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy with Johnson & Johnson's, you know, 65 70% even. Uh-huh. Yeah, a vaccine is, doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to get the job done. Okay, next question. What was your worst moment in science? Okay. So I, I, I hope, I don't know, does, I hope that like, <laughs> maybe my, I don't know who listens to this, but I, um, <laughs> don't worry, nobody listens. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, um, in my, when I was doing my PhD, I was working on a very precious set of samples that were from children in Sri Lanka and I was doing dengue virus research and I had a set of samples that I was doing my assay, doing my assay. And I just, for whatever reason, decided to that day walk with them in my hand instead of putting them in like a crate and carrying them down the hall. And it was like, they, uh, someone hit bumped into me and they spilled and I lost an entire data set that is forever not recoverable because those were the last of those samples uh, in that particular order, in that particular set of data or particular set of samples. And so that was the worst moment for me. I actually, I actually was screaming, crying so loud that my lab mate came out of the lab and she just looked down. And she was like, just go home. It's okay. I'll get it up. And I just went home. I didn't even, like, I didn't even clean it up. I just, it was horrible. Well, that, you, you were able to come up with a good story for, for, the, for that question. You seem to have an awful lot of really powerful, good confidence. What gives you confidence? Um, you know, most likely my faith, I think. Um, when you know that you can do all things through Christ, how can you not be confident in that? Okay. One last question that we've been touching on all through this. What do you think we can do to help more people enjoy a love of science? Help people to understand what love is firstly. I think that, (laughs) you know, I, I think that one of the things that's missing about what is society's now definition of love is more so about utility as, as opposed to just joy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to do that with my nieces and nephews is I try to like really allow them to like ex- fully express and be joyful in whatever moment it is that they are joyful. And then helping them to see why they were joyful in that moment, because the more people start to realize like, you know, looking at numbers on a piece of paper, if I'm in a third grade, like if it makes me happy, I might could be a scientist. The more that people tap into their joy and, you know, giving people who are different than your average scientists, visibility and platforms and resources 
to shine their light is an obvious way that you can help people to understand what are the joys of science. Well, you've given me a lot of joy today. Thank <laughs> well, you. Thanks. You've been just terrific to talk. Almost everything you said could have been its own podcast. <laughs> oh, thank God. You. Okay, well, then just do two. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so, so much. So fun. So fun. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Dr. Kazmikia Corbett is the scientific lead for the Vaccine Research Center's coronavirus team at the NIH. She's a graduate of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where she was a Meyerhoff Scholar. In addition to her work helping develop the Moderna vaccine, she spent several years working on a universal flu vaccine. She's one of Time Magazine's 2021 Time 100 Next, and she was nominated by Dr. Anthony Fauci for that honor. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with doctors Ayman Azim and Sharona Benheim. Their husband and wife who are each fascinated by how the brain controls our movements and how sometimes that control goes haywire. We should all be very impressed with ourselves. We do things every single day, like buttoning our shirt or writing a text on our phone that requires this incredibly complex coordination of dozens of muscles. So I think if we can get a better understanding of the way that different circuits interact to coordinate these behaviors, we're gonna be in a better place for diagnosis and treatment. As a functional neurosurgeon, I try to alter human physiology, you know, for the better. So for me, understanding a circuit is just about how to improve the treatment sort of in a very direct fashion. Dr. Ayman Azim and Dr. Sharona Benheim. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>